Hi everyone, it's Kasia here. A few months ago, we recorded this episode for our Patreon subscribers on strikes in the 1970s, partially because many newspapers have been warning of a return. But as the economic and political landscape gets ever more dicey, with more strikes this week and in the autumn, we thought it important to put this episode out on our main feed for you, our general listeners. So, some figures for you. At the time of releasing this, the BBC reports that inflation is at 10.1% and the Bank of England has predicted it could peak at 14%, the highest in 40 years. This is already eating into pay, especially in the public sector. We're currently living through the largest difference between public and private sector pay. The rise in food rate has been the largest month on month for 20 years. Petrol and diesel have seen the highest annual inflation of around 43.7% more than the year before. And while average wages rose 4.7% between April and June 2022, that was outpaced by inflation, or price rises, which are growing at a much faster pace. As a result, the real value of pay fell by 3%, according to the Office for National Statistics. These are trends we can see across many places globally, but it's important to note that for decades our public services, or those that should be public, have been seriously underfunded, with profits going to shareholders rather than in maintaining services and paying staff. It should be illegal. So while these figures are grim, we hope this episode will allow you to critically engage with powerful but lazy historical equivalences to articulate your solidarity, and finally, to think about the humble white utility candle in new ways. As ever, if you like what we do and want to help us keep going, please consider supporting our Patreon or just tell a friend about us. It really does mean a lot. Enjoy! and welcome to another episode of Cursed Objects. My name is Dan Hancocks, I'm a journalist, author, and I'm wise to the lies of the company spies, and I don't get fooled by the factory rules because I always read between the lines. (laughs) And joining me as ever is... (laughs) Dr Cassidy, historian, and you won't catch me, I'm part of the union. (laughs) Lovely stuff. I, I love that we both went for union song lyrics <laughs> <laughs> to introduce this episode. <laughs> Indeed, you can you can already tell which way it's going. First, let's uh, just explain wh- who we are and what we're doing. This is Cursed Objects, a podcast about pop culture, strange, forgotten, overlooked, and misunderstood bits of history, and most importantly, tat items <laughs> that 
uh, we take so we take a different object every week and then use that to explore a particular part of history, reevaluate it, and uh, consider how what the relationship is between the material objects and the world around them. And yeah, this week we are recording in the middle of a strike week, which I think should go some way to explaining why we're both quote, quoting Straub's lyrics at you. Um, in fact, only only yesterday in preparation for this, uh, we put a call out on Twitter for everyone's favourite union, trade union and strike related songs. What a bounty. There yeah. were so many. Oh my God, people were amazing. Uh, Cash, so Cash and I were already sending tunes to, you know, Billy Bragg and Pete Seeger tunes to each other about various historic strikes solidarity forever that kind of thing um but we got sent some amazing ones really liked uh there was a, uh, a yiddish anarchist one my friend sam gill sent me about yeah about that us. one was great um I, i'm really pleased that somebody immediately in fact it was the first suggestion was the lisa simpson strike song um <laughs> where, where uh, <laughs> at the nuclear power plant which is actually genuinely quite a moving moving piece of music <laughs> sung by <laughs> sung by lisa simpson the real person who definitely exists <laughs> there, there was an interesting variety of of different sort of musical styles that that came up but it does it is particularly associated with folk music i think isn't it i don't know i think also like punk obviously yeah maybe like post-punk kind of like crass like political punk um definitely yeah a a lot of a lot of people suggesting stuff from the from the early and mid 80s which is no great surprise particularly british stuff anyway when you consider the uh the minor strike was obviously generating a lot of cultural energy around that sort of thing mm. but i think today kasha i mean you're about to explain we're actually we're going back a decade further to talk a lot about the 1970s but part of the reason for that is because of what's going on right now um in the uk um we've had a week of railway rail strikes um led by the rmt union though not exclusively the rmt union it's made a celebrity of mick lynch the leader of the rmt who seems to be everybody's favorite kind of political leader in the absence of any actual political leadership. <laughs> Wasn't he also famous from being on Thunderbirds? <laughs> Apparently so, yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah, he's, you know, he's been speaking up for his members with the sort of clarity um, and just directness about the need for, um, you know, Britain needs a pay rise, essentially, is is the message that has not been articulated clearly from our political class and instead you've got this this trade union leader who I suppose in the he's being so far at least received very differently to how Arthur Scargill was in the 1980s but he has become as much a you know he's, he's on tv talking about politics a lot more than Keir Starmer. Well it's just ridiculous because the late like the Labour Party literally said like four months ago oh yeah um Britain needs a pay rise and mm. then when there's an actual union that's like Okay, cool. So we want that pay rise. Labour's like, sorry, new phone, who dis? Like, it's <laughs> like, where have you gone? Yeah, <laughs> you were literally true. saying this four months ago. How can you have absolutely no policies? How can yeah. you? Have, how can you not even be able to back it slightly? Exactly. Anyway, like, I feel like we're going to go down such a rabbit. Yeah, hole. yeah. This is not. This is not. A, this is not a, a podcast about uh, contemporary polit- current affairs and politics. Um, no. which is just as well because there's plenty of history that we need to talk about but it is extremely relevant mm. to what's going on at the moment and you know with the um, RPI as, which is a measure of inflation that basically looks at the the shopping in your basket and compares the prices um, the RPI uh, inflation rate is uh, just under 12% I think 
Uh, and you're mm. seeing that if you go in Sainsbury's or Tesco right now. Uh, the I know it's the t- um, <laughs> speaks to my bourgeois mores, obviously, but the taste the difference pasta, i.e., the only pasta that's really <laughs> worth eating, is now one pound ninety, and I'm pretty sure it was one pound seventy about a fortnight ago, and that's going to get a lot worse. <laughs> Um, for those of us that care about taste of difference pasta, no, I mean I'm joking, but like my brother has that with um my brother has that with Ginster's pasties, like right. you know, like, like he knows exactly Ginsters. how much yeah. it costs, yeah, 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 exactly, and like always when it's on offer, when it's on offer, it's always a pound, and mm-hmm. like now it's like one pound twenty five, and like whenever yeah. he's about, he's just like that is just that is just criminal, yeah. <laughs> even the special offers, Dan, even the special offers know. are fucked. But it just it's worth spelling out for for any listeners that we or, or many listeners overseas actually that um although many of them will be looking at inflation rapid inflation in their countries because a lot of the trends underpinning this are global they're related to COVID they're related to um, energy supply they relate to the Russia Russian invasion of Ukraine um and the consequences that's had for um, energy prices but what we're seeing in the uk is um already and this has been going for a while but it's just intensified a lot is people in full-time employment unable to like who are having to draw state benefits um for their housing because of crazy rents or uh because the pay their pay is simply too low compared to the cost of living Mm. you're seeing people in full-time employment having to go to food banks to feed themselves and it's going to be it's going to be a potentially very, very bleak autumn and winter. Uh, people are already struggling. Mm-hmm. Things are getting a lot harder. Um, and that's why essentially the RMT are on strike, you know, because their members mm. are struggling to get by and are not being offered a, even a, a vaguely reasonable pay rise while the shareholders and indeed the the, the rail companies that are in public ownership are, have been creaming off, you know, million, hundreds of millions, 500 million in profits, I think it is. It's a. It is quite a similar argument to in, broadly to what was going on in the seventies. Yeah. But uh, I'm not the expert in that. My co-host Kasha T is. <laughs> yeah, I think I just want to kind of say, I don't know whether this is just the kind of left-wing bubble that me and you are trapped in and we operate in, but I do think that there is a broad support for the strikes, and also there is an idea of a kind of potentially a summer of strikes coming up. Mm. I think the idea that especially, I think, essential key workers, people who worked in transport, risked their lives during COVID, you know, also doctors, nurses, teachers, etc. There was this whole idea during COVID, like, oh, wow, we couldn't do without them. Mm -hmm. And then, like, COVID is quote unquote over. It's not. But anyway, you know, after that, um, it's like, okay, so where's the where, where's the remuneration here? Yeah. Where is the kind of acknowledgement of what happened? Yeah. So I don't know whether it's because I don't know. I don't know whether it's because we're in a left wing bubble, Dan, on our on our Twitter feeds or whatever, but I do think there is a broad support for these strikes and there is also a broad kind of like hope generated by the idea of, well, I guess reclaiming or claiming better working rights. I mean, or even just keeping up with inf- with uh with inflate you know having having wages that even vaguely try and keep up with inflation i can answer that question there has been polling this week already on the rail strikes um mm-hmm. you can cast aside any thoughts about bubbles 58 percent of the pe- of people polled by savannah comrez uh polling firm 58 percent said the, the strikes were justified 34 percent said they were unjustified you know there a lawful lot goes on in the manufacturing of consent to use mm. the to use a slightly hackneyed Chomsky in term, um, the manufacturing of consent around uh, through the media over 
whether taking industrial action is an acceptable thing to do. And in spite of the like absolute sort of all out war waged by the British press and media on the workers who are, who are taking strike action in the UK this week, you know, people people can see through that because they can see the mm-hmm. they, they know what they've just been through in the last two years during the, the like COVID. They know that the state can actually offer support when it when there's mm-hmm. a crisis and they know that it's not doing that. And they can see that their pastor is one pound ninety where it used to be one pound seventy. And hopefully they're, they're learning that, you know, there are more billionaires in this country than ever were before. That Many of them are in government, <laughs> et cetera, yeah. et cetera. So, so yeah, I think, you know, it's going to be, it's going to be a long, hot summer or hopefully hot anyway. And the okay. question, the question that, you know, the question that's sort of being asked is, you know, are we facing quote, a summer of discontent, which itself is a throwback to the 1970s. It is a reference yeah. to the winter of discontent, uh, so-called. Uh, and it's, it, it's, it's got all the columnists and indeed Newsnight asking, you know, are we going back to the 70s, which is sort of the question we want to discuss today, isn't it? Yeah, 100%. So I was talking to my um, long-term, long-term fan of the show, my auntie, uh, about this kind of idea of the summer of strikes and um, potentially like an object that we could use to discuss the summer of strikes, because this is something that, you know, sometimes we're object led, but I think in this instance, we're very much like led by the circumstances of, of our current time, right? Mm. Because we are also like framing and shaping a world through our big P and small P politics, right? The interrelation between the things that happen outside of our kind of like worldview. And I think also how you stand on unions is something that is is a really like deeply both a small P and a big P political issue, like how one, how one views unions. So I was talking to her about a potential object and without, you know, without missing a beat, she was like, white utility candles. And I was like, <laughs> I was like, <laughs> I was like uh, okay. Like, because for anyone who doesn't know what a white, I mean, for anyone who doesn't know what a white utility candle is, it's essentially just like you would get like a pack of, I don't know, six to eight very cheap white, kind of like long candles and she was kind of she I was like you know what kind of reminds you of that time of the 1970s and she said every single person had everyone had those candles everyone boxes and boxes of them right boxes and boxes (laughs) and boxes yeah because you wouldn't buy decorative candles because they wouldn't last very long you know you wouldn't buy those like ikea pink ones that smell like cherries it's this isn't joe malone territory is it basically no this is not no 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 exactly exactly (laughs) this is candles for a purpose because they became necessary as as we're about to find out essentially there were um huge power outages throughout the 1970s which i'll come on to in a second but i think what's really interesting is that like when she was reflecting on these on these candles and like how she used them she would say everyone in the house kind of instinctually knew where these candles were. So if the lights went out, you would be able to find them in a heartbeat. And you'd buy these kind of cheap ones because they would last all night and they wouldn't cost the world. Mm. Um, but also that like that every single person who lived through the 1970s probably still has a packet of these white candles in their house just in case. And she said it was amazing during the, I think the hurricane of uh, 86 or 87, you know, that famous one where Michael Fish got the... Hurricane. It was 87. Some of us were alive. 87. I remember it. All right. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) Show off. Okay. No, no. (laughs) I am. Someone who remembers it. I was there. Okay. Honestly, it was one of my earliest memories. It was was very dramatic. She was like, it was amazing. Well, she was like, you know, we were all fine during that because everyone had all these candles still knocking about. (laughs) And it just, it just struck me how 
I don't I don't have these white candles in my in my house. You don't either, Dan, I'm sure. No, like it's not the first thing that you'd get. It's not, you know, I would have no idea where to even find a candle. I would just use my iPhone in the event of a power outage. <laughs> but like but like, you know, I guess I guess what I'm trying to get at here is that power outages, I think maybe there's been like five in my life. They're quite exciting, aren't they? This is they, They're super exciting. They're really fun. <laughs> I remember like I remember them being like a thrilling thing when they would happen when you when you were a kid. You know, as you say, incredibly infrequently. But like the two times I was, you know, subject to a power cut. You know, suddenly, suddenly, all every all the everything changes. You know, like you you you've got that complete upturning of everyday life and experience, and in a way that yeah, obviously, if it's ha if it's happening repeatedly over a period of months, as it did in nineteen seventy three, that's quite different mm -hmm. to one evening where you play cards by candlelight and like mm. you know, and you you have to, uh, you know, drink cold tea or whatever. I have, I, I have a related candle story actually from my family, which is that um, in the beginning of the um, of the three day week, which I'm sure we're going to get on to, uh, when when you know there were these shortage power shortages and uh, everything uh, was like you know energy saving was required across the nation. Uh, there was a state of emergency. My dad's friend Pete sensing the possibility for a quick buck as there were candle shortages because everyone was buying so many of them my dad's friend pete drove a van over down to france and filled it up with candles um thinking he could then del boy style sell them on to a, to a desperate public the only ones he could find were like these tall thin church candles <laughs> um but he nonetheless filled up a van with them drove them back to to the midlands where i think where he was living at the time and uh, but by the time he got back, the three day week was over. So he was oh, no. so his entire house was just like filled with boxes of these candles that he couldn't shift, and he was just like offloading them onto friends. My dad said, "I think we still got a box of them in the attic, <laughs> even now." Um, oh, after this, yeah, a very unfortunate business decision. <laughs> well, luckily, fifteen years later, there was a hurricane, so I'm sure. Yeah. Fortunately, <laughs> I'm sure for somebody would have come into use. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> So on to the 1970s, certainly at the moment, quite a lot of newspaper headlines say things like taking us back to the 1970s. They mention things like union barons. They mention things like the winter of discontent or the summer of discontent. And obviously these are kind of catch-all phrases and terms that really evoke the 1970s, obviously, um, because some of them say taking us back to the 1970s. But anyway, I really urge anyone that wants to learn a little bit more about the 1970s or really wants to reassess the 1970s to buy or read a book by Pemberton, Black and Thane. That's an edited collection that's all about, re it's called Reassessing 1970s Britain. Mm -hmm. And it's really informed quite a lot of my thinking. So when we think about the 1970s, we often associate it with the term crisis and particularly of decline. This kind of sense of decline really kicks off in probably around 1973. So, for example, Britain jo joining the EU, well, the common market as it was, really seemed, I think, to a lot of contemporaries at the time as emblematic of Britain's kind of reduced importance in the world. And I think it's important to note that this sense of decline didn't just originate in the 1970s. There was a real steady sense of decline, specifically around um, the loss of colonies. Independent struggles having been won, won during the 50s and 60s, yeah, 40s, 50s and 60s. Yeah, specifically in Britain, this sense of decline was, there was a lot of anxiety and it was palpably felt 
pretty much exactly, you know, straight after 1945. But I think a lot of these crises came to be felt particularly acutely in the 1970s. So, you know, after the joining of the common market, in the winter of like 73 to 74, there was a kind of dub, there was the double pressures of the increased oil prices imposed by the Organization for Petroleum Exporting Companies or OPEC. So they massively increased the price of their oil. They quadrupled them, didn't they? Like, yes. like overnight, yeah, it was, <laughs> essentially. Yeah just overnight. But there was also um, a kind of ongoing minor strike during that time. So it meant that power was rationed via power cuts, essentially. Shop windows fell dark by government order and candles, which is our cursed object today. Mm. So the white utility candles, they sold out which is notable because they'd actually been removed from the retail price index in 1956. Oh, right. Presumably, they'd been consigned to history and they came back. This was their blazing moment. So <laughs> the 70s really were a great time for candles. <laughs> 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 Terrible time for everything else, but really great time for candles. And that's the alternative narrative we want to tell. <laughs> we'll produce a podcast from the perspective of a candle this week. Um, <laughs> that's yeah. that's going to be our spin-off. Yeah, that's going to be our spin-off. There, but yeah, essentially, you know, that, that ensued that there was like a three-day working week to to save power, essentially. And TV, I, I, I one little detail I hadn't realised before was that that TV had to go off at ten thirty, <laughs> um, which yeah, yeah. which there were only three channels, and there wasn't really probably a great deal on after ten thirty. But yeah, the, people were encouraged to take baths in a baths in an inch of water um, mm. as as part of these sort of uh, you know it's winter. Bear in mind as well. So so yeah, mm. with, in order to conserve the hot water and the energy that produced it. So yeah, people were asked to make these sacrifices sort of across their lives, really. I think it's really notable that in terms of sacrifices, a lot of the kind of affluent lifestyle that had, I don't know, come to be developed during the immediate post-war era. So the idea of TV ownership in and of itself, you know, like TV mm. ownership massively um, expanded between like, I don't know, like the 60s and the 70s. So Although let's just let's just couch affluence in modern terms, though, like... People, people had black and white TVs mostly. <laughs> like you know, the, I think it's important yeah. for our younger listeners to understand that like affluence in 1972, in terms of like the consumer goods that you have available to you, are barely. A, you know, I mean, it would it would feel, I'm sure, sort of like prehistoric to 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 our Gen Z listeners. Do we have any Gen Z yeah. listeners? Let us know. <laughs> I'm sure. I'm sure. I'm sure. We're sure. very cool, down. <laughs> I, I I agree. You know, there are there was. Um, Petrol rationing and and bread short bread shortages and rationing that kind of really evoked this kind of like I guess World War Two or immediate post World War Two kind of era and and didn't really kind of felt at odds with the kind of relative affluence that mm. people thought that the terms that they should be living by at that time. Yeah. But I think also it's really I love this so much that like that winter I think of seventy three to seventy four um, the Christmas number one was. Slade, <laughs> you know, the oh. one that goes, look to the future now. And yeah. it's just amazing that in this like general sense of like decline, mm. there is this song, this Christmas song about looking to the future. Amazing. When, you know, at the time, actually, like it was just kind of the getting started of like, I guess, a series of moral panics, not just um, not just about often we associate moral panics with like subcultures, mm. you know, uh, uh, and especially actually in the 1970s, that's when the theory of moral panics first was actually 
A, invented. B, you saw like, you know, a huge outpouring of these moral panics around muggers, punks, uh, hooligans. But actually there are a series of moral panics that are around economics, about lifestyle, about specific Uh groups. Well, about, I mean, presumably partly about sort of both women's and uh, gay and lesbian liberation movements actually beginning to secure some re- some some of their first tentative gains as well and let's let's emphasize yeah, the word yeah. tentative here but but the knock-on effects that that has socially um is thought to have socially by conservative commentators is is you know there's a, there's a lot of conservative commentators and and politicians who are up in arms about the family being destroyed Mm. But I think like, you know, social issues are important here. But I think if we if we understand moral panic to kind of mean in the broadest sense, a kind of fear or a panic that's generated particularly by the media, I guess, that's like one way of looking at like how we understand a moral panic. You can look at the strikes in the 1970s. They certainly constituted quite the panic in terms of like how they represented a sense of industrial declinism in the 1970s. I was going to ask you, what do you mean by industrial declinism? Like the industry is declining? Or... Yeah, that the industry was declining, that like Britain's Britain's industrial outputs are declining. I see. Which is, you know, yeah. which is true in the sense that it, it is the beginning of the end. We can now see retrospectively for, for you know, coal mining in particular. Mm-hmm. But it's important, you know, this is a very basic historian's point. It's important not to project things backwards. People didn't know in 1972 that, you know, by 1985, Britain's coal mining industry would be essentially non-existent. <laughs> yeah, 100%. And I also kind of, I don't want to detract from the fact that the media were creating, you know, I hate kind of using vague terms like the media, but specifically print media like newspapers, they were really just starting to get going during this era. Like, yeah, I guess I guess how we associate the media of the 80s and 90s, it was really, really getting going in the 70s, I think. But, you know, I don't want to kind of detract from the ways that they reported stories from the real material consequences, I guess, of the recession and the changes in the 1970s. Like, it was, it was hard times, you know? So, like, in 1975, inflation hit 29.6%, a level that hadn't been seen since like the Napoleonic Wars. Between 1975 and 1977, unemployment doubled, reaching five times higher than in the 1950s. Although, you know, it's kind of interesting to see that it didn't even touch like how many people were unemployed in the 1980s. But, you know, there are a series of, I guess, Uh, changes in the 1970s, economic changes that are really stark. So actually, this is an interesting point, which kind of brings together both the media and also economic changes. So in 1976, the government was forced to go, and I'm quoting here, cap in hand, a phrase I think that represents kind of a number of declinist colloquialisms that were just rife in the 1970s. So like another one was, you know, like gone to the dogs. A lot of these phrases were banded around in the 1970s because the government had to go to the International Monetary Fund to secure a $3.9 billion loan, which was the largest loan made by by that institution at that time. So Mm. there was a real sense that like the government was kind of failing. Britain had no money. It was the sick man of Europe. In the sick man of Europe is one of these colloquialisms mm. that kind of represent like declinism, if you see what I mean. Is this, is this sort of what you mean by a, by a print? Me- I mean, this is when you say bandied around and you were talking about the sort of print media's uh, role in all of this. You're talking about kind of a tabloid culture, particularly, I think, right? That is, yes. that is, yeah. that is describing, mm-hmm. yeah, a, a Britain that has, that is not working. 
to uh, reference the, the famous Thatcherite um, poster that, that sort of depicted a massive unemployment line with the slogan "Labour isn't working." A sense that yeah, mm-hmm. things things had things were grinding to a halt. Cap in hands a fascinating one because who wears caps? Like uh, we're not talking about baseball caps. We're not talking about new eras. <laughs> we're talking. We're talking about. We're talking about that's like, one for our Gen Z listeners. Don't yeah, it really is. We got it. We got to keep explaining to the Gen Z listeners. Gotta don't worry. Keep it relevant. We will be accepting this on TikTok later. Don't worry. Um, but yeah, the, the idea of a cap here is is absolutely clearly denoting a working class man, right? Isn't it? I would have mm, thought. So mm. like going cap in hand, like please, sir. Uh, you know, I mean, I guess it's actually it's referencing Oliver Twist, probably. Is it? Mm. I don't know. I, love, I don't know the. I love breaking down idioms. Etymology. We should do cursed mm. idioms. I think because you know you, they're, they're, they are the phrases that we use day to day without really thinking about them, but they often tell a much wider story, which is what you're which is what you're so um, the really interesting point you're making here that like the way that the media discusses and describes the role of the British state helps shape the political kind of consciousness of the nation ambiently, mm. not directly. I'm not saying you know people aren't mugs. I'm not saying this so much false consciousness that people don't know what they're voting for. But um, if the media is constantly sort of presenting an image of particularly Callaghan, the uh, Labour Prime Minister in the, in the 1970s or the end of the 70s that preceded Margaret Thatcher as a, as, and he was a union, a union man, you know, he was, he was very much associated with the trade union. It helped set the scene for Thatcherism that she's, that she's sweeping aside both a period in which there were a lot of industrial disputes, i.e. trade union disputes, tr- strikes, with with a Labour Party that is said to be ultimately responsible for them. Mm. Well, I mean, it's, you know, to bring it up briefly up to the present again, which is why the the incredibly flawed logic behind Keir Starmer's cowardice over the, tra- over the rail strikes is that the, the Labour Party can't possibly be painted as the party beholden to the unions this you know this what happened in the 1970s informs our has informed our politics ever since in terms of relationships between the trade unions and labor and you know it's critical to tony blair's decision to to try and you know weaken those links you know followed a period of massive kind of weakening of union power in general like the you know the 70s are an end of an era and that era is an era in which the trade unions and therefore working working people working class people workers had some power they could bring the country to a halt and it's worth emphasizing because it's quite a staggering discrepancy the trade union membership at the end of the 1970s was 50 percent so 50 percent of workers were members of trade unions now it's 23 percent so it's less than half what it was then and you Mm. know if, if thatcher came to power to break the unions she succeeded ultimately yeah you know like sure, the, the, sure. there was a series of bits of trade union uh sorry legislation around what trade unions could do mm. that began under ted heath uh the uh, an earlier conservative prime minister and then really accelerated under margaret thatcher but like you know when we talk about the neoliberal period which you know is generally thought to have begun in either 1979 or 73 depending on how you look at it uh, but but basically describes the last 40 years of how our economy and our politics has functioned. A critical part of that is the weakening of trade unions. So so in that sense, people, do, when we talk about kind of going back to the 70s and, and, and whether we talk about that from the right or the left, whether we talk about it from the point of view of a Sun or Daily Mail front page or from the point of view of, um, you know, 
two lefties with a podcast, hypothetically, we're looking at a period that was really different mm-hmm. in which trade unions did have the power to to make demands of government. Yeah. It, which is why it's so noteworthy. I almost said striking, but that would have been confusing. It's why it's so noteworthy that at the moment, you know, we are actually seeing such mass industrial action again, you know, that, that someone like Mick Lynch can be on every TV show and on the front page of the papers and stuff. Uh, speaking up again because that hasn't happened for a really long time yeah no 100 percent. i think you know to kind of take us back to the 1970s you kind of raised that point that like what happened to the unions during that period is like still really shaped the way that we understand unions Mm. i guess like one way of thinking about that specifically is i don't know like i think unions had a really transformative effect on the way that like culture was understood at the time as well Mm. they were kind of often framed as like out of control, which is something Hmm. that even now when there's like a mild union industrial dispute, they're like, the unions are out of control. And it's like, no, they've striked once for two days. Like, you know, and like often like the phrase union baron, union barons get kind of like bandied around. And um, I was reading something actually that was kind of talking about there was a perception, particularly in the 1970s, that the unions could um, kind of like topple government. So especially in 74 and 79, they were there was this kind of idea that, you know, they could like bring down a government and they could hold hold a government hostage. I mean, that's that's another bit of phrasing that's often used. Yes, 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 exactly, exactly. Um, But there is a kind of different way or an alternative way to read, um, you know, okay. One, I think that that trope, Union Barons, was like really successfully deployed by Margaret Thatcher and then later regurgitated by Tony Blair, Mm. I guess in a sense because he wanted to uh, distance himself from from the 1970s specifically because maybe he just realised, maybe, you know, he's a politician, very shrewd politician Mm. uh, for all of his other massive, massive foes Mm -hmm. um, who I guess wanted to distance himself from that because he realised that the narrative had been lost, you know, that if the public had turned against, uh, there was like a, you know, there was a huge public perception against trade unions towards the end of the 1970s, even though union membership had massively increased Mm. during that time, if you see what I mean. I mean, let's, yeah, let's just take a minute to think about why barons is the term that is deployed for a union, a trade union leader. It's because it speaks to like an undemocratic medieval (laughs) um, form of leadership, which is outright misleading in the sense that trade union leaders, as Mick Lynch has been reminding everybody this week, are elected by their members in the same way that, you know, uh, the prime minister is elected, (laughs) you know, there's a, they are, they are required to hold a a ballot of all of their members and they have a much higher bar for, um, for, for the number of, like, it has to be a, I think it has to be a majority of the people eligible to vote rather than just a majority of the people that do vote, which is actually a higher bar democratically than than we have for our elected politicians but yeah but it suits the it suits the conservatives and it suits people like Tony Blair and it suits um right-wing newspapers to describe them as barons because it makes them seem like I mean the other association I think is robber barons (laughs) right (laughs) you know these are nefarious sort of hoodlums almost or like bandits yes it's almost like it's you know like these are people who are out out for themselves who are probably you know who are always like portrayed as like you know union fat cats is the other term that gets used quite a lot because mm. they're paid you know eighty grand as Mick Lynch, the leader of the RMT, is paid um, per year 
with no mention of the fact that the his counterpart of the Boston Network Rail is paid is it five hundred or six hundred grand? Anyway, a lot more, a hell of a lot more. Mm. Um, there's, there's, mm. you know, no one has any issue with that in the right wing press. Because you know, I think we can, you know, kind of acknowledge as uh, George Woodcock, Secretary of the Trade Unions Congress in 1972, acknowledged that there weren't really many sanctions over members and it was quite hard to enforce them. So I think this idea of barons is that these people get elected and then they the power goes to their head and then they just call strikes because they just want to and they're just laughing manically in their, <laughs> you know, in their like halls. And like, I think that was an image of leaders of unions that was super, super strong in the press particularly even though even though you know I think it kind of denies the fact that a lot of people you know members of unions vote for strikes it's not that these people are yeah, yeah. just like miscellaneous like evil masterminds who have all all unchecked power and then can basically hold a government to, to ransom you know I'm using that in heavy air quotes based on their own whims because as you yeah, say, exactly. it's not it's not their decision, it's the decision of their members as they have to constantly try and remind their interviewers. Well, exactly. And I think that, yeah, one of the huge kind of things that's often overlooked, especially in this idea of like union barons, is the fact that like significant members lose okay, firstly, they um especially in the 1970s, they saw off hyperinflation via the acceptance of reduced real wages. So they they were still making sacrifices, even as they said these conditions are, are unacceptable. And also it completely like doesn't acknowledge the fact that like you lose money when you go on strike. Like no one wants to go on strike. It's really awful. Like yeah. people don't just do it because they're just like... Oh, do you know what I fancy a strike on Thursday? Like, you know, people people do it because because their 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 wages are going down. They need better better like lives. I think it's worth saying, like, you're not educated about this stuff at school. Like, you you aren't. I don't know at what point I realised that going on strike meant you weren't paid, but it wasn't. I know, yeah. I wasn't. I knew what a strike was long before I knew that fact. <laughs> like you know, and I've got mm. I've got parents who are very active, who, ever, who were very active trade union members, and got all the badges and have done all the strikes. And you know, my my dad was going through sort of attic stuff in the attic recently. Like, found a lot of the uh, sort of censures from the headmaster, who's a teacher, for for the mm. various uh, various times they went on strike, which was a lot in the nineteen seventies and eighties in particular. Mm. Um, but yeah, it's you know, it's part of the. It suit again. It suits people who are on the other side of the table from the from the trade unions for there to be sort of widespread ignorance about this kind of thing, and it's why it's what you know it's what I re why I referred to manufacturing consent before. It the language that we used to talk about unions and indeed about the seventies and as a period as a dark period is really important. It's why we have this podcast is to sort of you know address some of the misconceptions that are created by the mistelling of history ultimately and it, it really struck me barons is such a good example of um as a term of sort of the way that um the way that like trade union action is framed as something that is anti-progressive that is about turning the clock back and actually a lot of mm. the the phrases that we've seen in the press around the strikes this week is, is about going back to the 70s, turning the clock back to the 70s, casting us back to the 70s, and and thereby sort of reversing the positive effects of progress. Obviously, there have been many, many positive, you know, progressive changes since this that decade. 
um, in all aspects of, you know, social, technological, cultural life, etc. But it's really, it sort of suits the enemies of trade unions, i.e. bosses, capitalists and conservative MPs, to frame themselves as the carriers of the torch of progress against this regressive force. And you saw it so much in the Corbyn period. It was always like, they're going to take us back to the 70s as well. There were literally front pages um, mm. both the Telegraph and the Sun I found in a two-second Google yesterday saying, you know, Corbyn wants to take us back to the 70s. I think ca the candle is like such a perfect avatar, or such a perfect cursed object for this week because there's this sort of idea of light and dark that, that I think yes. really runs through all of this stuff. Even with, and Kasha and I are not medieval historians or indeed, you know, uh, historians of the first centuries AD, but... <laughs> the Dark Ages as a term is a really interesting one in itself. Um, and mm -hmm. if I may just tell a very brief anecdote, um, the Venerable Bede, who was a chronicler of, that, of those sort of uh, sort of centuries uh, between the medieval, you know, between the birth of Christ and and, and, uh, and the medieval period, um, the Venerable Bede has a theme park in Northumberland called Bede's World. Uh, which you wouldn't quite believe would be a, a theme park, but <laughs> genuinely is an existing theme park, um, a theme park of sort of dark ages life. And the advert, I have a mate from Northumberland from uni, he would say that if you listen to the local radio, there'd be an advert that tried to dispel some of those myths. And it went as follows. Um, Welcome to Bede's World. They used to call it the Dark Ages, but it wasn't dark at all. It was a time of great technological innovation and enlightenment. <laughs> <laughs> but that's exactly the sort of... They, you know, the mm. historians of that uh, also, period have to do a lot of work to point out the fact that people weren't just living in caves throwing mud at each other. And in a way, mm, that's sort of mm. how, I think, in a much more modern sense, how the 70s has been historicised since the 1970s and particularly uh, during the period that I've been alive and uh, an, an adult, sort of, you know, the way it's framed in the media is a period in which, you know, and the lights were literally out, which is why we're talking about candles. <laughs> but they, were, mm. they weren't out for the entire decade. Um, the winter right. of discontent in 1979 and the um, the three day week in 1973, I think, are often conflated in you know the sort of clip show histories that you get of like you remember those programs that are like who remembers the 70s? Yeah. Like yeah, you know you'll get you'll get like a picture of like someone of Slade and some glam rock, and then it will immediately cut somebody on strike, and then it will immediately cut to like piles of rubbish in the street. And everything sort of gets lumped together and flattened into one existential, like one sort of moment, which it isn't. Yeah. Like there are a series of moments uh, that are distinct. And those, some of those moments are really extraordinary. You know, the three day week is an extraordinary period. I know that when the COVID-19 lockdown happened, like the first, pretty much the first day that we were locked down, I phoned my parents. Um, and as someone who's interested in this sort of history and loves asking his parents endless questions about what they remember from the past i wanted to know from my parents like do you is there, was anything in your lifetime this weird basically like mm -hmm. do you remember anything that was this much of not so much a crisis as just like everything's been turned upside down because that's obviously how it felt right we all know that we all we are all um uh old enough to remember the beginning of the pandemic at least and my dad said I was expecting him to say maybe like the Cuban Missile Crisis or something, but I think they were a bit too young. 
and my my dad was straight in there with like the three day week. That was that is the only thing I can compare it to in terms of it being just everything has changed. And it didn't. Ch it wasn't for an incredibly long period. It wasn't nine months. I think it was. I can't remember how long it was. But it was a few weeks. I think wasn't it six weeks or something. Broadly, like what you're getting at is um, it's really neatly sketched out in a amazing article called The 1970s and the Stories We Tell by, I think, mm -hmm. Camilla Schofield and Emily Robinson. And it's all about, uh, you know, why are the 1970s evoked? Uh, what, what is it? What, what is this idea of crisis during the 1970s? What kind of what does that serve? What does the history of the 1970s mm -hmm. serve? Mm -hmm. And I think... More generally, this is a conversation, as many of our conversations, Dan, come down to the idea of the kind of creation of neoliberalism or like oh, the kind yeah. of implementation <laughs> of neoliberalism. So like, interesting during the 1970s, even though, you know, the government was seemed to, well, some politicians were seemed to be weak and, you know, there were like general crises. I think it's really interesting that certainly some historians have argued that there was a perception that the government should uh, be able to deal with recession and they should be able to deal with um, with unemployment and inflation and because they couldn't, that it wasn't them that was the problem, it was the system. It was the Keynesian system mm. of uh, social, you know, post-war social democracy was kind of the, the problem, right? And that was like eagerly seized on by the kind of new rights, the kind of like Thatcherites, mm. who basically basically said, look, everything that came before, you know, they, they were loving this. They, they were absolutely loving this. They were like, everything that's come before, yeah, chuck it in the bin. It's all gone, it's all gone to pot. Mm. Um, all gone to pot is another one that was like classic. <laughs> and I think in that kind of um blaming of the system rather than basically something that was really specific to that decade like yeah. um actually this was also perception that was fueled by the media i really hate saying things like the media because it's just not um it's just not very direct but like substantial you parts know, of the media yeah substantial <laughs> parts of the media so like i don't know like an, an a nice little headline i can i can find right is um in 1973 the daily mirror asked as the three-day working week approached is everyone going mad? You know, there's just like stuff. <laughs> there's just stuff like that. And I think in the in Britain specifically, the night the troubles of the 1970s. Also, we haven't even touched on the actual troubles, yeah. uh, which were also you know um, advancing, developing during the 1970s. Yeah, bloody Sunday in 1972, for example. Yeah, exactly, exactly. That's a, that's you know, a so crisis that was point. A real, ex a real example of like conflict in the United Kingdom. You know, like a real example of like actually um of i guess a, a, a post-colonial conflict as it were yeah. right british soldiers in, in shooting, the United Kingdom. shooting people yeah. in the, civilians in the streets british yeah. Subjects. Yeah. yeah exactly um so you know i think the 1970s were really framed they were certainly framed in the media as something that was like the bad times were happening in Britain. Mm. So like they weren't the, like the troubles elsewhere, not the actual troubles, but, you know, the uh, challenges faced by literally global recession that was like sparked by OPEC. Mm. That wasn't really um, explored. It wasn't sure. really represented much in the media. It became one of these things that often in the British cultural imaginary was like, oh, my God, Britain is the sick man of Europe. It's going to the dogs without any 
kind of reflection on the fact that like this was happening elsewhere. So there are geopolitical and economic geopolitical forces, and economic yeah, yeah. and social <laughs> social forces, you know, yeah, yeah, that yeah. were like that were like really strong that could be seen kind of globally um, in different contexts in different ways, especially mm. as old orthodoxies were challenged, whether they be economic or whether they be mm. social, you know, mm. that they were seriously being challenged. It yeah, the historicization of the 70s in Britain as that exactly as you described sort of unique series of unending but somehow conflated crises suits kind of a neoliberal telling of history because it suggests that there was a point in 1979 when everything started to change for the better and if you turn the clock back to that quote unquote if you turn the clock back to the 70s if we if we regress ultimately to the 1970s you'll be get that's what you'll get again you'll get you'll get all of these yeah. all of these quite historically specific crises will happen again and it will happen if you let trade unions get that you know win win one percent pay rise yeah exactly win for that win for their members a pay rise that actually keeps up with inflation so that they can feed their families essentially Um, okay so think of it in this way right so like okay there's a recession in the 1970s and um the new right kind of gain a kind of control of the narrative in 79 over like you know the winter of discontent Mm. and they basically usher in a kind of new political change because they're like the old model wasn't working we're going to bring in a new model that will work right now we had a recession right you know sparked by the um global financial crisis by the crash right in 2008 yeah and at no point was it like neoliberalism isn't working at no point was there a huge (laughs) shift in fact there was a larger shift towards basically publicly subsidizing all of these huge banks giving them shit loads of money and actually do you know what in terms of the strikes it was there was this amazing interview on lbc with this business owner i don't know their name um and she said, there is socialism in this country, heavy socialism for the corporate world, but there's no socialism socialism for the poor people. And it's true. When governments are subsidising companies that then pay money, uh, profits to their shareholders, you know, huge mm. dividends to their shareholders, yeah. there is socialism for some sections of society, for the corporate world, but there is, what, there's none for the poor people? How does that work? How is that, you know, neoliberalism has cons- like seen this huge shift in wealth towards those who already have the wealth. Mm-hmm. There's a global financial crisis, and although there were some that were like, okay, well, this system's broken, there needs to be checks and balances, actually it just oversaw a huge redistribution of wealth in favour of the wealthy. Yeah, up, yeah I mean, it's upwards. the, same, I mean, the same thing's happened with covid if there's one, if there's one thing that people exactly. with huge, huge economic power are very successful at, at, it's using every crisis as an opportunity to to continue. I mean, it, 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 you, if you if you want to sort of find some numbers on this, just look at the number that how the the sort of richest one percent have got richer in the last two years. You know, during a period mm. of, of of again unprecedented crisis in in the modern era, anyway. Yeah, I also, I don't know whether you noticed this, but with the um, Mick Lynch, like, I don't know, really super eloquently talking on TV and like basically just whenever he's being asked really stupid questions, just like answering them, 
you know, I guess with the kind of um, disdain for the media that he should because the questions are stupid. Mm. But like certainly in the 1970s, it's really interesting. Me and you have spoken about this. We spoke about this in our house pl- houseplants episode. The first one. The first one of Cursed Objects about how during the 1970s, the middle class were trying to refashion themselves as classless. So certainly in the kind of post-war period, um, there was a kind of blurring of class by this kind of, uh, you know, relative post-war affluence that we were talking about that often was kind of led by the middle classes who wanted to appear kind of like classless. And actually the prominence of the unions in the 1970s really brought um, class kind of back to the fore as a, as I guess, as a political lens. So um, it's really interesting. So, I, I mean, I really had this listening to Mick Lynch, you know, just he's like, I'm a working class guy. I'm not who you're trying to paint me out to be some union baron, whatever that means. You know, I'm literally a working class person that's trying to protect the interests uh, of a lot of workers of cleaners who have to pay like huge amounts to get onto trains because their their welfare isn't subsidized just to work for minimum wage cleaning trains, you know? And um, I was really struck by that kind of similarity between the 1970s and, and now, specifically in the kind of class tension. So I don't know whether you've read Alan Silito's Pit Strike, which is like this really... Um, just like this kind of little short play basically where there's this like miner in Nottingham and they go to London um, to kind of like participate in a in a miner strike and there are just so many acute class tensions within that about and 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 I think this is something that we often don't talk about all that often now we kind of regard class as like you know what is class it's so amorphous what does it mean actually there is a class component to how we understand I guess the struggles of the unions especially for like people maybe that maybe class doesn't look um as clearly defined as as we maybe imagined it looked in the 1970s but like it's still such a massive component of like how people experience their lives today well yeah it's a victory of Ultimately, sorry to say it again, it's a victory of neoliberalism that that class dynamics and class as a lens through which to discuss your politics has been completely sucked out over the of, poli- of our political discourse. Um, you know, by and um, you know, it's not the, the the big bad here is maybe neoliberalism, but there are there are people, there are human beings that are responsible for this. They, you know, it's it is sort of part of the new labour project that that famous quote about us. Uh, all being middle class now and, and, and the class tensions of the post-war period that ultimately won loads of gains for working class people are not necessary anymore because we've reached the end of history, um, because everyone's sort of just placidly getting on with things. I mean, this is the sort of 90s ideal of uh, mm. of kind of um, of the third way as well, is that is that you don't have class conflict producing, well, ultimately gains so, such as the weekend and you know uh like a limit on working hours and mm. uh, the minimum wage and so forth but yeah it's you know there was there was a there was a a, a political leader of the labor party from 2015 to 2019 that i think tried to bring that some of that back a bit via the sort of cipher of for the many not the few mm. and you know and then you could also look at occupy wall street and the other sort of movements around that at circa 2011 which spoke of you know the 99 percent versus the one percent but that sort of contestational politics it, it didn't disappear altogether it just disappeared from the mainstream of, of, of political life and so it's very refreshing to have someone like mick lynch being asked a question like are you a class warrior 
and him calmly saying, I'm, you know, this isn't about war, no, but I'm representing the interests of my of working class members, you know, and again, he sort mm. of takes, he always sort of managed to suck the poison out of every question, but also not, he doesn't run away screaming and, and or equivocate when it, when he is asked about whether he is a representative of the working classes against the boss class, which he is, you know, like, and mm. obviously people further to the left would, I'm sure, love to see sort of, you know, really sort of fiery, um, class warrior rhetoric, but he's—I mean—he's shown how he can stay true to his politics uh, as as a representative of the working class without without getting kind of sucked into a very temperature raising kind of firebrand kind of rhetoric necessarily. I mean, he's not Bob Crow, who was actually a Stalinist, who <laughs> was you know a, a, mu a much more a much more sort of strident. Uh, stridently class warrior union leader but but you know you have you have like the guy that's being talked about as possible successor to Keir Starmer West Streeting apparently according to a little snippet I saw on Twitter today apologized to fellow members of the shadow cabinet for sticking up for workers on uh, in the, in a debate over the the um the, the rail strikes which is exactly the sort of extraordinary sort of neo blairite thing that mm. that could that could not you could not have imagined happening in the 1970s in any part of the labor party even though there were there were right wing bits of the labor party back then but none of them i'm sure would have said like i'm absolutely going to steer clear of ever saying anything positive about workers so there's i think there's a really interesting and like pertinent point that kind of carries on from this idea of the 1970s here and it's in um richard waits uh Patriots, uh, and on the on the winter of discontent. So the winter of discontent, and I'm quoting here, entered British folklore and became a direct counterpoint to the finest hour, creating a legend of resistance to enemies within, hmm. just as the war had done with enemies without. So um, I just think that there's like a really interesting idea here of like fighting the unions, like they're the, they're the ones that are like. Um, there was an interesting kind of like historical counterpoint here. So like yeah. Britain was fighting its finest hour against against the Nazis and then it needed to really turn inwards, uh, you know, on the enemies within and those enemies were the trade unions. And I we think that's something that's really powerful, powerfully been carried through, been believed by many, you know, yeah. by on the, on the Labour right as as with the Conservatives. And the other, the other connotation, of course, of the enemy within in that particular moment is that the Cold War is still happening. There is a Soviet Union, and that the organised working class, as represented through the trade unions, are not dissimilar to Reds under the bed in terms of you know mm. they are they are enemies of Britain ultimately, and it was a phrase that mm. was used again over uh, about Scargill and the National Union of Miners in the nineteen eighties. In fact, I think the enemy within is also the name of a apparently excellent book by Seamus Milne. Um, about the minor strike, which I haven't read, but everyone says it's brilliant. Um, I sh we should probably all read. Well, let's we'll do it when we do a, a minor strike episode one day. I guess I just want to. I just. I guess I just want to kind of finish up on like one final point, which is there was this protest in 1977, Brunswick in which 20,000 Britons took part and they took to the streets basically in support of a group of South Asian women who'd walked out on strike from this. Um, printing factory, photo factory, basically overpaying conditions. And I kind of want to like, I kind of want to end it. I kind of want to, 
you know, bring us back to that strike in the 1970s. Because often when we think about the 1970s, we think about think about miners, we think about like, you know, large unions. But actually, like, I just kind of want to highlight here that like solidarity is something that people across sections of society do for each other. And I think one of the things about strikes is that um, often people think that the strikers are just out for themselves. And I kind of want to highlight here that like strikes and certainly the solidarity that's experienced within them should cross sections of society. So like specifically now, a lot of people are saying like, why should the why should the RMT, why should they get a pay rise? Why should they, well, it's, it's framed as a pay rise, right? Why should they get more money? Or why should they have better working conditions when mm. all of us are drowning, right? In post, post-pandemic, post again, heavy air commas, you know, in the conditions like facilitated by that. And I kind of just want to highlight here that like anyone getting better rights, anyone fighting for better rights, that affects all of our rights. We all get better rights, you know? It's not just... And often people kind of like skew it and they go, what about the train drivers? Are oh, the train drivers and all of this kind of stuff? And I just kind of want to like express that like that is that is the mainstream fear of what unions can do. That union, one union will win and that other people will try to, you know, like the summer of strike strikes this idea. Other people, teachers, nurses, will try to get better, better conditions. And... They, they should get better conditions. And then people often bring in inflation. They're like, well, there's going to be hyperinflation. It's like, well, yes, but there won't be if actually the money is coming from the people that are, you know, creaming the most off the top. And I kind of just wanted to end with that because I think often strikes and uh, support for unions is framed as something that's like super individualistic or like super uh, in the interest of one group and not the rest of society. But actually, if we're thinking about the benefit and the health of society, like I was, I was talking to a friend recently who said, I don't believe in strikes, but I do believe in a culture change. And it's like, well... How will that culture change come about? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I mean, sure, we all believe in a culture change, but <laughs> sounds like, quite ab- sounds quite abstract and uh, hard, yeah, hard like, to implement, if you ask me. How do you do it, babe? Like, yeah. do you know what I mean? It's like I just kind of wanted to end on that because I just think that often, um, yeah, it's just kind of neoliberalism atomizes us, right? Yeah. It individualizes us, and even looking at the work that unions are doing as something only for them and not for us is a product mm-hmm. of neoliberal yes. thought. And I just really want to stress that because really well said. God, it's really frustrating. It's well, really it, frustrating. Your fight is my fight. All it, of our fights are each other's fights. And we make that's how we make a better society. Amen to that, Kasha. Oh, I mean, I'll just essentially <laughs> I'm gonna start crying. Bless you. As long as we don't play solidarity forever, I should be all right for crying. But um, um but yeah, let me I mean let me just echo that and quote. Because uh, what everything you were saying reminded me of something which is basically the end of the the RMT flyer that has been going out this week during the rail strikes. Uh, it reminded me of the phrasing at the very end of this flyer, which says, everyone deserves better pay, jobs and services. If rail workers win, we can all win. It's true. It's true. So yeah, that's where we're going to end this week's episode of Cursed Objects. We hope you've enjoyed it um, and our discussion of taking, taking Britain back to the 1970s, which, to be honest... The Straubs got a number two hit with Union. That's mad. (laughs) Part of the Union in 1973. So, personally, I would love to go back. 
<laughs> Take me back. If you've enjoyed if you enjoyed this episode, I mean you may be listening to it on our Patreon. Um, but do you tell a friend that we're gonna keep putting up episodes both on the free feed and on the Patreon feed. And if you love our stuff, then you'll hear a lot more episodes if you join our Patreon for as little as four pounds a month. Uh, we are workers too, and we're trying to get just a little bit of pay for it because you know, pasta's more expensive. Um, but uh, at the very least, <laughs> please, please do, uh, please do like just um, tell a friend if you've enjoyed the podcast, tweet about it, come and join our Twitter. In fact, if you look up our Twitter, you can also find the playlist of Strike and Union Bangers, which we put together with the help of the collective, i.e., our followers <laughs> which has actually got so many bangers on it including a song from a 90s disney musical called newsies uh which if you haven't seen is extremely strange it's a um it's a full disney musical for kids featuring a young christian bale which is extremely pro strike and pro trade union for kids it's very odd <laughs> um but it's this yeah the song is maybe not something that I think I prefer the Billy Bragg one. <laughs> we should watch it this weekend, Dan. Yes, that's such a good idea. It is genuinely inspiring <laughs> and quite mad. Um, anyway, who we... needs Glastonbury when you've got this weird? <laughs> <laughs> when you've got a nineties musical about about it's about it's about paper boys. So it's about you know you know the sort of cliche of like like young boys in like early nineteenth century America, early twentieth century America, standing on the street mm. corner going. Hey, mister, read all about it. Got your finger. Like, it's those, yeah. those are the newsies, and they go on strike against um, the newspaper owners, uh, the barons, who are, who are not paying them properly. And um, it's genuinely inspiring. Anyway, with that thought. <laughs> are, the, are the barons the same barons that are around during the Magna Carta, or are they different barons? So, why is the, it some barons, the Magna Carta barons, fine? <laughs> yeah. But genuine... when it comes to any other baron. <laughs> I know. We should do a whole episode on different types of barons. So I feel like we're covering yeah. them piecemeal bit by bit. We'll do one on newspaper <laughs> barons next. <laughs> Union barons, robber barons, all the barons. Anyway, we love you lots. Um, and uh, yeah, uh, support the strike. Never cross, cross a picket line. And uh, join our Patreon. Love you. <laughs> take take you. care, guys. Bye. Bye. Thanks. <laughs>